This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Even though we have like unlimited time, we will still cut jokes that we love. We will still, you know, tighten things up within as, as tight as they can be. There's nothing worse than one of those like bloated 35 minute comedies where you're like, what are we doing here, guys? You know, like, let's, let's get a move on. Let's go. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Hi, Isaac. I'm very excited to hear that we had a duo on this week. Who did you talk to for this episode? Uh, we did. And later this summer, we'll have a trio in one episode. Oh, my episode. gosh. I know. It's just wild microphone management. Uh, <laughs> for this week, I talked to Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, who used to be the head writers for Saturday Night Live and are currently the creators and showrunners of HBO's delightful comedy, The Other Two. Now, I'm a huge fan of the show The Other Two, but just in case some of our listeners aren't as familiar with the show, can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, so The Other Two is titled that because it is about the uh, a brother and sister, Brooke Dubeck, played by Helene York, and Carrie Dubeck, played by Drew Tarver, who are the unsuccessful siblings <laughs> of a kind of Bieber-esque YouTube star, their younger brother, Chase, who goes by the name Chase Dreams and is played by Case Walker. Uh, and then they also have a very uh, lovably eccentric mother named Pat, played by Molly Shannon, and a kind of um, not nefarious so much as incredibly needy and mildly incompetent manager <laughs> named Streeter, played by Ken Marino. And uh, the first season is all about Chase Dreams' rise and fall as a recording artist, and the second season is about their mother having a hit daytime talk show. The other two is a great show, so I really can't wait yeah. to dive into this interview. Um, and I know that we have a little extra Slate Plus bit this week. What can listeners look forward to? So, as you know, Karen, uh, in these interviews, we're often asking people, you know, how did COVID affect your creative process? Well, they had sort of the biggest doozy, I think, that we've come across so far, which is that they were midway through filming an actual episode when COVID hit, and then they picked up filming the second half of that episode uh and in between case walker who plays the teenage chase dreams like went through puberty and is like a foot taller and broader <laughs> shouldered and has a lower voice and all sorts of other stuff so we were talking about the creative challenges that that posed for them that is so so funny so listeners if you're not a slate plus member but want to get in on this good good stuff why not join slate plus as a member you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts unlimited reading on the slate site and member exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like the culture gap fest and the waves to learn more about becoming a slate plus member go to slate.com slash working plus Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider. Chris Kelly, Sarah Schneider, thank you so much for joining me this week on Working to Talk About Your Process. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So let's just start with the immediate. Where are you in your creative process right now? We're in the middle right now of writing season three. We're on episode nine of season three. So we're almost there. Oh, wow. So you're, you know, in the room. Yeah. Yes. Or I guess you're at the moment where you've all gone separately to write, right? Or uh, Yeah. We're at the point where the room, um, we took so long the room has finished. <laughs> so we are, <laughs> we, are, we are finishing nine and ten on our own. So let's talk a little bit about, I know the writer's room is kind of wrapped, but let's talk a little bit about the writer's room. Um, you were co-head writers of Saturday Night Live, which uh, has a kind of famously uh, rigorous writing process in part because of the speed at which the show has to be made and it's sketches and you're kind of auditioning them for each other and everything like that. Were there things 
you learned from that process that you bring into the room for the other two? Or maybe are there things that you did in that process that you're like, that definitely won't work in this in this room? <laughs> you know, uh, what did you take or not take from doing SNL? Well, one thing that you have to learn and, and how you have to operate at SNL is you really have to move on from stuff quickly. <laughs> you sort of have to kill your darlings. You'll put something up that you think was your life's work and then it fails. And so the, mm-hmm. and the next day you have to start over and write something else. So you, you sort of learn not to hold on to stuff, um, which I think is very well suited for a writer's room. When you're moving through stuff quickly, you have to sort of be like, oh, I loved that joke, but it doesn't work. So let's get rid of it. And we're, we do that to varying degrees of success, but I do think that, that when we do it successfully, it's from having to move on from stuff quickly at SNL. <laughs> I don't know. It's so interesting. Cause I feel like it is so different from SNL. I mean, like SNL is so separate. SNL is so, you know what I mean? Like we were head writers for a while. And, and so I guess we're quote unquote in charge, but everybody still writes their own ideas. You know, in writing night, you go off and by yourself, you go off in groups of two or three and everyone kind of has the power to just write what they want and they put it to the table and it works or it doesn't. And then on Thursday we will rewrite it and punch it up and things like that. But it's a bunch of different disparate ideas and sketches and voices. Um, and so this is a writer's room all collectively trying to write the same thing together. Right. So it just, it has felt very different. Yeah. SNL is such a, like it already exists. And so you sort of come right, into an a role that already right? exists. Yeah. 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 Sort of like set up, there's a process that's already set up. And so when you're show running your own show, you sort of have to like refine that process and how it works for you. We're still finding it to this day, but mm. it is very different in that you are sort of, we are now at the top. <laughs> Whereas before there was always someone above us to be like, do this differently. We'd be like, okay. <laughs> what, what are some of the discoveries you've made about running a room over the three seasons of, of doing the show? Yeah, just that it's a little about writing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's about it's about writing, but it's about people management. It's about hiring. It's about um, you know, show running isn't just writing. It's you know, we were there during production and post production, and so it's kind of it's being a part of every single thing. And like the writing is still happening when you're directing and when you're editing and working with um, those people. So it's just um, yeah, it's just like a larger, bigger machine. When you actually do have to sit down and write, whether it's together or, you know, is there, are, how do you shut all that stuff out? You know, some writers have rituals. They're like, ah, oh, I'm going to light this particular candle and then I'm going <laughs> to sit down at my desk or whatever. You know, how, how do you do it? How do you learn how to keep all that stuff at bay so you can do the creative part of, you know, your writing job? Well, we sort of don't move on to like full writing out stuff until we're like very solid in our groundwork or in our, you know, so we break one episode at a time. We have the luxury that we get to write the whole season and then prep the whole season and then shoot the whole season and then edit the whole season so we can compartmentalize what tasks Mm. we're on. I know other shows where it's like, we're working on episode seven, they're rewriting episode three, we're shooting episode 10. And that is like a brain that is miraculous to me. I don't, that feels so, so hard. So at least on our part, we we focus on one episode, make sure the groundwork, the like what we really need to happen in the episode happens. And then we pitch, you know, fun and jokes within each scene. And then once we get to the outline, that's when we're like, OK, great. We have we put on our Adele and listen to music and have all our jokes to choose from. And that's like a long process. But that's sort of the quote unquote writing where we have mm. everything and then we just get to like pick and choose and put it together. And so then we send in an outline. It's like basically done. And so then the scripting part is a damn blast because right. the outline's so detailed. So we're just like, copy, paste, copy, paste. This is great. <laughs> we're, we're writing so fast. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about, you know, breaking the episodes because I feel like that term uh, might not be one our listeners are familiar with. So what is, you know, breaking a season or breaking an episode? What is that part of the TV writing process? I mean, I'm sure it's different for everyone, but we tend to kind of break the season at the beginning of, of the writer's room, obviously. So we usually spend a couple of weeks just being like, hi, hello, everyone, and kind of shooting the shit and talking about anything that is funny to us. And um, because our show is very steeped in pop culture, we'll kind of talk about anything and everything that's like going on in the entertainment industry, anything we've noticed or annoyed by or think is funny. Um, so you're brainstorming ideas of things to kind of satirize over the course of the season. In a loose way, I mean, but, you know. Yeah, things like, oh, uh, celebrity baptisms are a thing. Oh, yeah, let's put celebrity baptism on a board. And then it's good just to be like, that's in the ether now. And we don't necessarily need to be like, so there is an episode where we just put it up there. And we all are like, oh, my God. And you just kind of find yourself talking and being like, oh, celebrity baptisms. Everybody's yes-anding this. Everyone's latching onto this. Remember when this and Justin Bieber did this. And I saw a photo where, and you can kind of just on the first couple of days, notice the ideas that people seem to come alive for instead of a little straighter for. You move on from it. You talk about things that happen in your life. 
um, sad things, weird things. Here's a fucked up thought I had once, you know, and you just kind of talk. And then after the first couple of weeks, you notice that your, your brain is still thinking about celebrity baptism or this dating story. One of our writers, Gilly said, or you just, um, things rise to the top a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so then we start breaking the season and we start coming up with like what the quote unquote about of the season is. Like we think this season is about this. So, you know, season two of the other two on its surface was about their mom being famous now, but we really thought it was about, um, they've already been through this. Their brother was famous and now their mom, they're like not going to do this again. So how do we, how do we rise to the top and find success for ourselves? And then kind of working towards like the dynamic within the family changing by the end, they've worked so hard to find success for themselves. They've kind of, their mom and brother have become the other two. So we kind of come up with like, Oh, that's a good like sentence. or that's a good big idea. And and you, so, so you two didn't come into the room at the beginning of season two being like, right. Season two is about, this dynamic with the family. That's something that arose out of that brainstorming process. We did ish actually, maybe that one we had super big picture. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's to your, to be honest, part of the tough thing is it's like, sometimes you come into the room having things that, you know, and sometimes for good and for bad, they're like, no, no start now. And you don't feel like you know what, why you want to make another season. And so you have to quickly figure out what inspires you to write a new season while writing the new season. So we may have had a version like that, and then we'll kind of chop away and be like, okay, well, if that's the big story, what is a Brooke story within that? What's a Carrie story within that? Um, yeah, you just kind of go start big and go smaller and smaller, and then know like, okay, well, if this is Brooke's story. This is where she starts. This is where she ends. What are some tent poles along the way? Like, what would be a turn in episode three? How would it shift again in six? How would it go up in nine and down in ten? You know, you kind of know... You just kick bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, you know. Um. That's so fascinating because, you know, one of the things that I really admire about the show is the way it balances those serialized and self-contained elements that every episode has a clear beginning, middle and an end. You know, if you if you dropped in and didn't know what was going on in the season, you would at least have Mm -hmm. some of it you wouldn't understand, but you would still have a good time watching it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And yet it connects out. To there, So, you know, the episode where Brooke keeps violating her NDA, for example, <laughs> you know, there's a clear problem. It has a clear mm-hmm. twist. It has a clear solution. But it also sets up stuff that pays off in episodes nine and ten and things like that. So, yeah, that's yeah. interesting that you start broad and go small to kind of get there. That must be something you're always thinking about, though, is that, like, what is the self-contained thing in this episode? Yeah, totally. We always talk about what the drama is. So that for that episode eight, for example, the, the want or drama that we would have settled on that needed to happen in that episode was Brooke started the season really wanting to do good for her mom. And this is the episode where she's sort of taking her eye off the prize a little bit and has like, uh, is thinking of herself a little more than thinking of her mom. And so her, like her want that episode, her, like her lowercase want, like her desire to like date this guy or whatever is, um, is more about like her wanting, um, the perks of this like status status she's gotten to she's feeling herself and it ends with her um kind of doing a shitty thing for her mom and kind of piling more work on her so we kind of knew like if you take all the comedy away that's the drama she's taking her eye off the prize she's thinking less about her mom more about herself so in a very boring (laughs) dramatic way like once you break the season before you go episode (laughs) to episode we would have a little board where we're like even if you delete the comedy this is like the dramatic want for the character this is what she learns or does you know so we have all of our building blocks. So forever lost, we can check and be like, no, that's what we decided. Okay. And, what's a, and then like, what's a dumb way to show that? What's a stupid heightened pop culture parody that can do that, that drama or something. Right. And then you have your other list of stupid pop culture things. Yeah. You want to parody. And <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. Got mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. We also really like shows where, and we try and do it in our show. You're like, that's the, this episode, that's the, this episode. Like we said a lot of things that like functions or events. And so we like the idea that you could aesthetically recognize an episode. It's not just like, oh yeah, that was somewhere in the mix there. It's like, right. oh yeah, that was in the mid season. I remember that like visually that was that episode or that was this, this story was like very self-contained. So you can like recognize the delineation. So you're moving environments as well as a way of kind oh, of, Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's like yeah. the, the Insta gaze episode is a lot of outdoor stuff. Yeah. And the, new, the new Hadid sister. <laughs> we really will, will write, not necessarily write to look sometimes, but mm-hmm. being like, We'd like a big event here, so it's not just like sitcommy. Um, the, the, Back like, to the we same place like, again. Yeah, they're in apartments and stuff. We kind of would rather like not just see them in apartments over and over again, and more being like this whole thing takes place while they're in line for this, or this whole place takes place on the roof of a this, um, right? Which helps maintain that episodic feel. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, I mean, not remotely close to, but like the party down thing, which we think is the best idea for a TV show possible, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's funny because in party down, because that's their job, you know, you only need like two lines to establish the premise of the episode. It's Steve Gutenberg's birthday party. Here we are working Steve Gutenberg, or like it's the porn awards or whatever. You know, it it strikes me that uh, one of the things you have to do in a half hour comedy is like really, really efficiently get the exposition out of the way without <laughs> oh it making God, yeah. it making it feel just like pure exposition like the um you know the servant characters at the beginning of a Moliere play being like did you hear the master of the house has <laughs> fallen under the spell of a religious charlatan uh so i'm just wondering uh uh exposition is so difficult in any yeah. writing form uh, how you all approach that i know it's so that's what it's i mean so that's tough. is great about party down because like they it just it is nice that you're dropped in media res <laughs> Let's just talk and about then, party down <laughs> well because you're just dropped in media res and then you can have some jokes about the environment for a while and then as people are moving through it you start in the middle of their sentences as opposed to on the way to the party like right. the thing that drives me the craziest is like and and sometimes you find yourself writing it because you're like how the hell else do we get out this exposition it's like Brooke and Carrie walking down the street being like, God, isn't it crazy that mom is going to this? You know, we're like, uh, you know, uh, isn't it so weird that Chase got invited to this thing and now we get to go, but we don't have tickets. You know, you're like, Jesus Christ with this. So right, it's like right. trying to figure out another way. To, it's honestly just trying to not use the phrase. Isn't it so crazy bad? Right. It, it's <laughs> or, um, like the thing, the thing, the Simpsons parody when they're like, the Simpsons are going to Europe or, you know, whatever. It is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of times it comes through Wanda Sykes' character, Shuli, which we didn't do it on purposely, but she is just the character who ha- who is the um, most jaded and can just talk about things very bluntly in a way that's funny, but luckily right. also can serve the idea of like, here's what we're doing today, where other people can be like, are we sure that's a good idea? And be like, yes, here's the purpose. I'm saying it as this character. Shuli Kusarak, Chase's publicist from the label. Sorry to barge in while you're settling, but we have an important PR opportunity to discuss. It was my idea. Yeah. And it's for tonight, so we have no time to waste. I thought of it. She's not their boss exactly, but there is something about having a boss who can walk in and be like, your job, I mean, it's sort of like what Alec Baldwin (laughs) did a lot of times in 30 Rock, right? He comes in Mm -hmm. and he says, Lemon, you're going to do this now. (laughs) The Shinehearts are hiring an outside consulting firm. What does that mean? It means they're bringing in hatchet men to trim the fat. And on Monday, you will have to present and justify your budget to them. Can you handle that? Handle a presentation? Because a boss really does do that. They haul you into their office and say, you got to go do this. Yeah. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider. 
you all have been a writing team for a long time. How do you let other writers into the process? I mean, I suppose you have a lot of experience of that, but again, in that institution of SNL where everyone's kind of, you know, on top of each other in this way, but here you have a show that the two of you wrote a a pilot of that you have a specific vision of and ideas about. And then suddenly you've got to open that somewhat private thing up into all this input from all of these people. I know. I think that's like a thing we try to like figure out and balance. And I think a lot of it is like at the end of the day, we're the ones who created the show. And at the end of the day, we're the ones that like will carry it onto set and will be in the end, the edit. So we feel like it's our job to like make sure everything works, all the drama's landing. But like throughout the way, we could not be doing it without our room. I mean, they add so much of the comedy and the jokes and the point of view about pop culture, real things that have happened in their lives that go into the show. Um, you know, like we have a lot of like female and queer voices in the show. So the actual like stories and experiences that Brooke and Carrie go through, it's by no means like me and Sarah in a room by ourselves doing it all. It's mm. oftentimes at the end of the day, me and Sarah putting it together or, um, or like kind of culling it down or being like, okay, what is fun and cool and we liked, but isn't like doing the work that we need this episode to do. So like mom and dad will come in and be like, okay, that's <laughs> great. But this episode needs to be just way too long not way way too long um (laughs) but it is still like super collaborative throughout and like the whole room kind of pitching and being like what is the dumbest thing that could happen here what's the thing that happened in your life you know I know I think especially with a long-term partnership like ours we we are very in sync in a way that I really value other people's coming in because Chris and I will be like we would both do this it's not working. Is anyone else see this a different way? And just someone's completely different point of view on the thing or something they've experienced that's colors their take really can help us be like, oh yeah, duh, that's one tick off from what we were thinking, but we were just like so in this tunnel that that is so helpful just to get a fresh, fresh eyes on stuff. So yeah, we, we couldn't do it without a writer's room and we're, we're spent. We're out of stories. <laughs> we've done 30, 30 episodes. We're like, what else? Yeah. <laughs> And what do you look for in the writers you hire? Uh, w- one of your uh, writers is actually a former guest on Working Cola Scola. So uh, uh-huh. uh, they're great. I- I'm just curious about you know what do you what do you look for in the people you're hiring? I mean, that's a good example. Cole's just one of the funniest people alive. Well, like, yes, they're they're just amazing. And so I guess just a point of view, like anyone who is has a point of view. You know what I mean? Like um, when we would read scripts. Uh, it wasn't necessarily to be like, oh, this script is like the other two. Um, but it just, this script is funny. The script has a voice that I can just, it sounds different than other scripts. It doesn't feel like they are writing, oh, we got to put together a 30 minute script. It feels like they, there's a reason they wrote this. It has a specific voice. Yeah. I remember specifically the a confidence in the writing. I like Cole's script. Their script was like, pee pee poo poo town or something and we were like it wasn't a direct comp but they were just so confident in the way they were writing it and it was so specific that we were just like this will be an addition to our room same with this mm-hmm. season a lot of our writers that we were new this season and last season we just read a sample that felt so sure of itself and that's kind mm-hmm. of all you can ask for in a writer is to be like i'm i mean we would make sure we would be like we agree with the comedic um sensibility <laughs> like it makes us laugh so not just like um strong but wrong (laughs) like we still wanted to be to think it was funny and think it would be a good fit but you want a writer to come in and not really waver in what they think is funny or what their point of view is what their take is on the world so so you're worried a little a little less about like structure and stuff like that because that you all can figure out later or no we try to find a balance so we also try to find people the room tends to be a combination of people that we think are really funny and that maybe are a little green haven't been in a room before and we don't really care about that because we just want like the raw point of view and sensibility um, and like life experience, for example, you know what I mean? Um, Maybe somebody's had a disastrous life that they can (laughs) tell us about. Um, And then hopefully people who've been in a room before, people who understand story structure, people who um, are funny, but also understand the like, okay, well in order to like set this up, you've got to really be tracking this. So, cause it is, that's the biggest thing that is so much work, especially to me is um, yeah, just the drama, just making sure that this, isn't just funny, but there's like a, 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 like a there, there, like there's a reason we're doing this episode. What's it about? Um, right. And so having, having other sets of eyes on it to make sure like this, this episode feels like something or feels like it's ultimately it's funny, but then it kind of at the end becomes about Carrie being homophobic still or something, you know, right. um, 
Yeah. I know what this season we had Alison Silverman on our on our show with us, who is just incredible and has been like head writer of Colbert's worked on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, has just like worked on so many great shows. And she was so it was just such a different way that her brain worked and brought to us. She can like look at the story from like a story structure point of view, where sometimes I or other like writers will get in the like mud of like, well, what's the joke here? And, and it's like, well, it's not working for some reason. Let's like look above the clouds and be like, it's because this, and Chris does this too very excellently. Like this needs to lead to this needs to lead to this. And the reason this is feeling off isn't because we don't have the right joke. It's because we don't have the right move or we don't have the right, this beat isn't, isn't connecting in a way that feels authentic or the story is only up and there's no dips in it, you know, stuff like that, that feels very structural and essential and then all of a sudden all your jokes feel better because the tree they're hung on is more sound (laughs) right so how do you create the right vibe in your writers you know i have a (laughs) lot of friends who work as as screen and, and television writers and it seems like the vibe in the writer's room is one of the hardest things to really get so that people are bringing their best selves and you're getting their best ideas, but they also feel open to critiquing each other, but they're not going to take it too personally or be too vicious or, you know, so that it's really sort of, um, fruitful, but truthful, authentic, collaborative process. It just seems like that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I'm just wondering how you all approach that problem. It's a combination of like hosting a party, but then also trying to put together a puzzle in your mind mm. and, um, and trying to figure out how to use everybody's strengths. You know, like Sarah was saying, where Allison is so good at being like, here's how the structure of a season works. So really like knowing when to use her, how to use her. This is um, knowing when to break the room off and have somebody, some people are pitching jokes, some people are figuring out a story problem. It's kind of every day is a little different. So it's trying to figure out how to run it, but then also be writing at the same time. Right. Right. I feel like something that we really try and do is I think it's really easy when you're like, um, you know, you, we have 10 weeks to do this. Like, like no to that idea. No, that's not going to work. Let's move on. Let's, it was very easy to just be like, uh, try and be efficient. Like it's because always says we're running a business, which is true. Like we're, we're, we need to like get things going because we have to get to the next stage to get to the next stage. But we really try and it's not bullshit to give positive feedback wherever you can. So it's like that right. pitch isn't going to work, but that is so fucking funny. I wish that worked here so bad. Um, these jokes we can't use, but like, damn, they made us laugh. We're like, those are so good. And that's such a small, like obvious thing, but, um, it sometimes falls by the wayside just because of time constraints and things like that. And so just trying to, to make sure people know that we're grateful for the stuff that they're giving us the like jokes. Now that you're three seasons in and you know, the actors really well, you know, and you've worked with them a lot, to what extent do you feel like you're writing to them? I think we just really know how they're going to play things. And so we're not writing to the actors, but their characterizations. We, yeah, we now know so deeply, like every once in a while, we'll, the, the stage direction will just be like, um, you know, as Brooke does, or, or you're, you just know exactly. So every once in a while we'll get beyond set and like Drew or Helena will say something. We'll be like, no, that's not how you do it. Like we, we've already pictured right. exactly how, how it would sound. And so when it's off, it's like, you're not doing the thing you do, um, which amazing. is a weird note to give, but, but yeah, we totally know their strengths at this point and how they can make things funny and their cadences. Um, and so we really do write to their strengths. I think at this point. Yeah, a lot of times it'll be like, what will we think it's funny to see Drew do? Or what do you think it'll be funny to see Helena do? So we'll try to write to, yeah, write to their strengths in that way. Um, Yeah, like it's fun to see Drew humiliated. So what's a way we haven't done yet? You know, (laughs) He's very um, good at being humiliated. The best. Or honestly, sometimes it's the opposite where we're like, I've actually seen Drew in this mode one too many times. Let's make sure we do, like, what if we give him more of like a Brooke episode or what is a different flavor or um, what's a surprising way that Pat can act so that it's not just like, oh, I'm a Midwestern mom. Like, what's another Mm. purposeful change there, you know? That's interesting because my my literal next question on this list was about how complicated the Dubecks are as characters or, you know, that, that there's a lot going on in those characters as silly as the the show can be or whatever. And I'm wondering about how you went about, you know, creating those characters and how you went about thinking about developing them. Are you, did you have like, you know, extensive backstory written or, you know, what, what did you, how do you think about character? you know, I think the characters have deepened the more we've written for them, obviously, they've now just like lived more lives. So now that's inherent in in what they are. Like our characters don't ever start an episode like back at zero. They've always grown, and we've specifically grown them far. 
So I think when we first started, we knew the basics of like, um, Drew's a loser. <laughs> like Carrie is humili- easily humiliated. Brooke is strong, but wrong. That's like, we just knew their general ideas and Carrie was struggling to be an actor and, and Brooke had been a dancer and had failed and was now flailing around. And so we just chose them because they were the funniest and best to be, to have their little brother become famous. Like they mm. were just both, they're perfectly placed for that to exacerbate their, their struggles. And then from there, they've just grown and become more and more complicated because of what they've experienced on the show. So we didn't go into it being like, okay, well, if we get to a season three, we want Brooke to do necessarily this. It's sort of come from where the, where the show has taken them. Um, or I think it's if you just like put enough pieces on the board in the beginning, you know that you have like infinite ways to move them and play them in future seasons. So even <laughs> yeah. just like, we don't have everything figured out, but like the fact that their father had died and he was an alcoholic and they have this younger brother and they're from this small town and Carrie's been struggling with his sexuality and Brooke was in this, just broke up and was in this relationship for years. It just gives us the ability to be like, okay, what was her relationship like at the beginning? Or what was it like when they started dating? Or what are ways that he struggled with the sexuality? Or let's meet their father. Or um, it just gives you being like, oh, we, oh, we set that up. We could always deepen it if we want. Right. And at the end of the day, they're kind of loosely based on us or things we've been through or even just the fact they're from Ohio. We relate to their upbringing. So if we ever need to tell stories about that, we can kind of we have ourselves to kind of dig from, too. So moving out of the room for a second to shooting, which I know you're gearing up to do. TV is very different from film or, or theater in terms of how much power the writers who are have as showrunners. You, you're you're on set, you're. You're in charge, but that also means you have to make constant decisions. You're making decisions all the time. And on set, those decisions have to be made, you know, pretty quickly. So I'm just wondering about how you kind of, you know, move efficiently through the work you have to do once you're on set and what your lives are like, your work lives are like on set itself. Once we are in production, I think Chris and I are both like, um, everyone else needs to make every decision outside of work for us. <laughs> like, I know. You just have so much decision fatigue where you're just like, tell me what I'm eating for dinner. Tell me where I sleep. Tell me what TV show I'm watching when I lay down for 10 minutes. Boy- <laughs> I make my boyfriend wash me. Um, <laughs> well, actually, I was saying, I think I was saying that like we are still writing while we're directing and editing just in that like, you know, editing is writing or like a lot right. of the like, st- but we don't actually rewrite on set, which is the one thing that I do think helps us. We are not yeah, like writers totally. who are like new pages, you know, we are like, um, that script is Bible. Like we will like try to make changes if it's helpful to production or we need to collapse these two scenes because now we can't shoot at yada yada. But we aren't really writing new jokes or figuring mm-hmm. things out partly because it's such a dense show and partly because we also direct and there are so many other things and other variables when you shoot that were like the one yeah, gift we can hopefully give everybody <laughs> is like the script is not going to be changing. We don't suddenly need, a, a, you know, this new thing because of this joke. Right. Um, and the actors aren't improvising at all? Not really. The scripts are so tight in terms of like the ins and outs that there's never like, I mean, then at the end of the scene, just improvise because usually the end of the scene specifically is setting up the cut to the next scene. So there really is a science to the way it's written. Unfortunately, and when you, as you've made the move to HBO max, which among other things allows for more TV MA content, I suppose, <laughs> and um, less of a fixed running time. Has that adjusted kind of how you view your jobs or, you know, what, what you think about in terms of directing and editing, you know, that you don't have to cram everything into 23 minutes, for example? I know we sort of end up a little torn because while we are excited and our last season needed a little bit more time at the end, in the last couple of episodes to tell the like how big the stories were that we wanted to tell. Similarly, this season, we are telling slightly bigger stories, so we're happy to have some running time. But we also loved the restrictions of a tighter episode. Like, it just makes you cut things tight. It makes you kill your darlings. It makes the whole episode, like, hum because you just feel that every moment is being used and there's no loitering, like, Mm -hmm. as you go. And We talk about on this show all the time (laughs) that um, uh, constraints are where creativity comes from, right? I mean, we totally agree. So even though we have, like, unlimited time, we will still cut jokes that we love. We will still you know, tighten things up within as as tight as they can be. We don't want the, the episode. We want it to breathe and we want it to feel good. We don't want it to feel like you race through it. But even though we have unlimited time, quote unquote, we still will end up editing stuff down, way down just because we think it feels better that way. 
there's nothing worse than one of those like bloated 35 minute comedies where you're like, what are we doing here, guys? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, let's, let's get a move on. Let's go. <laughs> so you two are longstanding collaborators. And, and one thing we talk about collaboration constantly on this show. And so this is a, my, my producer's probably rolling his eyes because he's heard this question so many <laughs> times, but in any collaboration, any longstanding collaboration, especially one of the things you've got to figure out how to do is conflict within the collaboration. I'm just wondering <laughs> what you all have learned about that. And, and, you know, within a collaboration, how you manage conflict and use it productively and move on from it, you know, cause you have to have conflict. You can't just say the same things over and over again, but you still have to do it in a way that nurtures the relationship and the thing that you're creating. You know, we'll get tense at each other every once in a while or frequently when we're really stressed. But I think then one of us will just remind each other that we're on the same team, that we're, that we have the same goal, (laughs) that we want the same thing. Like we're working together. And so sometimes when it's like, I really like this thing, you don't want to do this, but it's like, I, I, I just want the show to be great. You want the show to be great. So it's not really about like our ideas aren't vibing or we're not on the same page. It's like, we just, we have the same goal at the end of the day. Um, or sometimes it'll be like Sarah will say just like I think we should just go have dinner where we're just like as friends to each other and not like (laughs) business people on a call about how the budget is and then we can't figure out this episode and like you know where it's just like let's go hang out with our like husbands and just like have a dinner and get drunk and not like um, be working all the time because I think you're like oh we were friends before we were like having to figure things out together every time we saw each other (laughs) Um, right yeah Every once in a while, I'm like, I just need to know how my friend is. But like, how are you? What'd you do last night? What do we, <laughs> what's, what's going on in our lives? Because also sometimes stuff comes from that weirdly. Like, you're yeah. like, oh, we were talking about this. We're laughing about this. We're either now we're in a better mood. And so we're ready to talk more about stuff. Or even just like you talking about this. I'm like, oh, that's so weird. That now brings me back to what we were talking about. I, I don't know. There's something in the alchemy. Do you just like, you can get in your, in a zone that's so deep into like, how does problem solve and how to fix things. But like you you have a partner in all of this. And so you have to step outside Mm -hmm. a little bit and be like, let's just like get back to the basics of why we're doing this together in the first place. Yeah. 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 Chris Kelly, Sarah Schneider. Thank you so much for talking to me this week about your process. (laughs) Thanks for having us. It was great. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I loved your discussion about learning skills from SNL versus learning to write for something more long form, I guess, kind of more of a longer project in the way that a TV show is. And you touch on something that we talk about a lot on working, which is moving on from an idea you may love. I'm wondering, is there a way to learn to move on from stuff that isn't SNL? Because it feels very necessary in that context, because the show has to get made in a week and you just need to keep coming up with ideas. But most of us aren't in that kind of environment where we're forced to move on. Yeah, that's true. I do think it's healthy to be in an environment, at least for a little while, where for whatever reason, you have to kill your darlings a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would be able to psychically survive SNL's very famously <laughs> abrasive writer's room. But, you know, you need to get to the point where you learn, OK, this isn't personal. This is just about finding the right idea. I can always come up with another one and then another one and then another one and then another one. I, you know, like I was in a sketch comedy group for a little while. That was helpful for that. You know, being in creative writing graduate school is helpful for that. You know, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But that said, it's never like easy. You know, like I I cut 
something like 30,000 words out of the method <laughs> in between two drafts. And some of that was really hard. The way that I kind of consoled myself was just by consistently asking, you know, is the book getting better through mm-hmm. doing this or am I just cutting this to cut? And if the answer to that question is, yes, the book's getting better, then it felt okay. I, mm-hmm. I do want to say that there are lots of other short form writer's room models beyond SNL that are worth thinking about. I mean, SNL's one is is famously, you bring it in, <laughs> then they beat the shit out of every idea <laughs> to see you know what's going to work and keep going. Um, the Onion has a really specific pitching process, which actually Slate began adopting, which there I think Dan Coyce wrote a good article about it at one point, where everyone brings in ideas uh, into the pitch meeting but then someone else has to pitch your idea. Like the ideas are mm-hmm. anonymized and you have to look at them and go, oh, this is an idea I like. And then you pitch that idea. Um, and also in his memoir, Comedy, 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 Drama, Bob Odenkirk, who really did not have a good time on SNL, talks about sort of inverting that process for mm-hmm. Mr. Show, where instead of having the best ideas and then beating the shit out of all of them and then whatever survives, you know, you go with, his thing was, you know, if an idea was bad, you just kept drilling down into <laughs> that bad idea and asking questions of it and trying to make it work mm-hmm. until it turned into a good idea. And I think that's like a really wild, generous, but yet rigorous way to think yeah. about writing, you know? It's definitely unusual. And I wanted to talk about another sort of process thing that you talk about with Chris and Sarah as well, um, which is that you spoke with some surprise about their method of going big and then getting small or drilling down into like kind of the focus of the idea. Do you tend to think about stories in an opposite way? No, no, I don't. I mean, uh, actually, I tend to think of them in exactly that way, but Mm -hmm. I just didn't know, you know, every writer's room is different and approaches that stuff differently. And sometimes a showrunner comes in and says, the big arc of this season is this, and we've got to just like figure out how that breaks out into eight episodes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they they start almost with nothing. Um, That said... You know, I do think it's true that I start big and then I go to the next level down, the next level down, Mm -hmm. the next level down until eventually you're at sentences, right? But I I also think it's still like a delicate dance between the two. You don't want whatever elegant superstructure you've worked out in your head to get in the way of discovery, or you might discover something that involves needing to change that structure, and, Mm -hmm. and that's okay, because what's really happening is that big thing you've built in your head hasn't been tested yet. And it's only once you're in the weeds that you start to figure that out. Um, and then I, I will also say there's plenty of writers who start small, you know, um, J Robert Lennon, who his new novel subdivision, mm-hmm. uh, he was talking about on this show a few months ago, that novel started through him writing down a list of just small ideas or little moments, images, snatches of dialogue, and then beginning to fit those together until a story developed. Mm-hmm. And, in terms of, I guess, building a story, the exposition discussion that you have was so funny too. I love that, right? Isn't <laughs> it? Isn't it crazy how we're both here on a podcast talking about Chris <laughs> Kelly and Sarah Snyder? I mean, there you go. It's so easy to establish a scenario sometimes, and also so difficult in others. Um, I'm curious if you have a specific take on setting up a story, if you find it easy, or if it's kind of the worst and hardest thing you have to do in that in a given context. I guess I think in nonfiction, it's a little bit easier because the reader is expecting you to just break the fourth wall at some point and be like, hey, you know, you kind of put on your best Connie Britton and Friday Night Lights voice and go, hey, y'all, here's some shit you need to know. (laughs) But um, if you do that for too long or you do it at arbitrary places or whatever, you can still kind of bore the audience or make them feel like they have whiplash. You've got to kind of manage it alongside the narrative tension. You know, mm-hmm. like, have you planted a question the reader wants to know? Because then that will buy you some time to tell them some other shit that you need them to know before you come around to answer it. And I think making sure your transitions are elegant really, really help. I really can't imagine what it's like for my friends who are fiction writers or particularly playwrights and screenwriters where it all has to be done through things people are saying. It's so hard. It is really an art. And I worry a little bit that, you know, we're so focused on show, don't tell, show, don't tell that we don't have a lot of great models for how to tell. Mm -hmm. We don't always know how to do exposition because it is its own art and craft that's worth paying attention to. And so to me, I always go back to like mid 20th century novels or, you know, before show, don't tell became the buzzword for everything to see how people did it. And you'll often find they do it in elegant, really interesting ways. 
Yeah, I mean, it's still such a big problem. Like, it's why the term exposition dump exists, because it's so commonly and badly done that people are like, oh, we have to find a word to describe this phenomenon. I remember a screenwriting professor in college talking Mm -hmm. about the movie Sleepy Hollow, which I'm old (laughs) enough that Sleepy Hollow had just come out. Yeah. And he said... Well, you know, you know that it's really inelegantly structured because they have to just like have a scene where they've trapped a bunch of people in a room two thirds of the way through the movie so they can all <laughs> explain to each other what's going on because they've done such a bad job of explaining it so far. And that was a real light bulb. Clearly, mm-hmm. I remembered it 23 years later. Yeah. But that was a real light bulb moment for me of like, you know, those exposition dumps are really, really tricky. Yeah, Um, absolutely. My daughter, as you know, watches Adventure Time a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating because those episodes are 11 minutes long. And Mm -hmm. so you have like five seconds to get the premise out of the way. Mm -hmm. You got to figure out how to keep a young audience from getting distracted. You've got to give them the information they need to know without underlining it so much that they feel patronized. I mean, those are really difficult craft challenges. The ones who do it well are really, really impressive, I think. Yeah, I mean, also extends really to any age, like anybody. (laughs) True. Those rules aren't exclusive to kids media or stuff that we perceive as kids media. Um, But I also want to talk about uh, you talk a little bit about Chris and Sarah, like starting to work in a different kind of writer's room than SNL. Um, The paltry experience that I've had in a writer's room, I've really enjoyed. But it's also something that you can never be sure is going to be a good experience because you only have control over your contribution and the way that you engage with other people people and whether you're good or bad at it. Um, And I wanted to ask what your experience with and advice for group projects like this is and how you change your mindset from when you're in charge of a group to when you are part of the group, if that makes sense. I've never been in a TV writer's room, but theater directing is really Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. about managing groups of people to be creative and to work towards a shared creative goal. And Yeah, I was actually just talking about this the other day. You know, the thing I think I was good at was leading positively, you know, figuring Mm -hmm. out what is the best this person has to offer that comes from the best of them and kind of Mm -hmm. drawing that out of them in a generous, not manipulative way. And also trying to figure out how to say no to things in a way that wasn't personal or didn't feel personal and explained why and maybe led to another good idea. Um, I think the thing that's important, no matter where you are in the hierarchy, when you're thinking about that is that you're all working together to create something. And mm-hmm. that that something is what's important. And it actually has its own needs and desires. And the more that you can keep your eye on that, as opposed to like what you want to do, what you want to do doesn't matter. What the work needs is what matters. And it, hopefully you have a person in charge who believes that as well and is mm-hmm. leading the conversation in that direction. The thing I was terrible at, honestly... Uh, was conflict over someone's bad behavior or unprofessionalism, Mm -hmm. which happens in in any, you know, it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. It could be something as simple as someone's late a few times to rehearsal or someone doesn't really know their lines on time or someone like cracks a joke that's maybe a little inappropriate for that Mm -hmm. room or whatever. It just happens. I hate confronting people when they're out of line. And I was just (laughs) never one of those people who could do it in that like complicated judo way where you leave the person feeling more inspired to work even better than ever before. You know, it really shouldn't be a big deal to say like, hey, you're a little behind on learning your lines and I'm getting worried about it. But, you know, it would keep me up nights and those conversations just never went well. And I, I was just not good at it. Well, I think that is arguably kind of the hardest part, like conflict management in any sense is kind of the hardest part of dealing with people. Oh, yeah. Especially like if because there's kind of two sides of the coin that you're talking about. One where it's like you are understanding of this person's problem, even if that what is happening is kind of deleterious to the entire project. And then the other side of the coin, which is they're actively kind of harming or um, being a negative influence on people, which is, I think, harder to deal with in a positive way. Because you have to impress upon that person like what you're doing is not okay. Like it's not that you need to work harder. It's that you need to stop like X behavior. Yeah. And you know, in the, a lot of times when that stuff would come up, I was in an environment for budgetary reasons or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, where um, that person couldn't be fired, you know, because the other thing that you can eventually do is fire someone. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's also true in, in TV and film that you end up in situations where someone can't be fired because of you know, they're a producer, you know, whatever it is. And so managing all that kind of stuff, uh, it just, it was terrible. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, I also wanted to talk about structure in a different sense. Um, in your conversation with Chris and Sarah, it was so rare to hear someone say that they loved having kind of more constrictions and more structure in terms of like working on a creative project. And granted, I sometimes agree, especially from a viewer perspective, that having like restrictions is kind of more helpful because you talk in the episode about like, 30 minute shows like going to 35 or 40 minutes and just getting really bloated. Um, But I also know that from a perspective of someone who works on this kind of stuff, it can also be really, really stressful. And I wanted to ask on your perspective and experience with um, structure in the kind of way that they're talking about. I do think that limitations are where creativity often comes from. I mean, mm-hmm. once you get beyond whatever the initial idea is, you have the initial yeah. idea, but it's it's in trying to make that idea work within the structures and limitations that you have that the kind of rich creativity that actually breathes life into that idea comes from, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think anyway. And I also think that like everything has a structure. There's always limitations. I mean, to even even on a basic level, like your new book is about Bong Joon-ho. It's not about Ryu Seung-wan. It's going to have integrated tech and photographs and like a coffee table book Mm -hmm. format. It's not a strict biography. You know, those are all structures and limitations, even if we don't think of them that way. And I had this experience with a method recently where I was like, wow, this subject matter is really infinite. Like any paragraph in this book, I could just keep researching, researching and write a whole book on that paragraph. And then I suddenly realized it's like actually almost every subject matter is infinite if you're interested (laughs) in it enough. And the most dangerous, stressful moment for me is the moment in between when you have the idea and you've created the structure for it and the work can kind of be anything. And I think particularly for you or me who work in a bunch of different art forms, it's like, I have this idea. Is it a song? Is it a painting? Is it an animated show? Is it a 16 part podcast? Is it a snack box subscription? Like what (laughs) is it? And, and, and that moment is really, um, difficult for me and stressful that's the stressful time for me yeah it is really hard also because like so many people will tell you so many different things whether it's like i think it would work best in this format but it's going to be more marketable in this other format that maybe you don't really want to do oh the more marketable in this format those are the words i hate hearing you know like it would be more market it's like i know i know but wouldn't it be better like this (laughs) other thing yeah sometimes you can't fight the power or you just let go of your project yeah exactly Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider for being our guests this week, to Kevin Bendis for his help with the research, and to Cameron Drews, our producer, who is the new Hadid sister of our hearts. We'll be back (laughs) next week with June's conversation with Elliot Lawrence, creator and executive producer of the show Motherland. Until then, get back to work. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.